Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome back. Monday, July 10th, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. I got David Dolan, my producer's chair, as is his want. I've got Bill to my right, who is uh, vice manager of everything having to do with operations. And the phone number for y'all is 602-508-0960, Usually, summertime is a time to have fewer thoughts about professional or formal education than other times of the year. Not this summer, not in the midst of a permanent revolution, which is what the left thinks we are in, or must be in. You know the notion of the permanent revolution. It was defined by Karl Marx as the interest and task to make the revolution permanent until all the propertied classes have been driven from their ruling positions, and until the proletariat had conquered state power, and until the association of the proletarians had progressed sufficiently far. That's his definition of it. And so any engine of effort will do just that and continue so long as it never stops. Thus, I give you the NEA, the National Education Association, the largest teachers union in the country. We discussed their recommended summer reading list last week with books like White Fragility and Gender Queer. One begins to want to rewrite the famous children's poem after looking at these things. No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. Remember that old, that old, uh, that old chestnut? I think we're going to have to re- rewrite it. And no more pencils, only our books, and lots and lots of dirty books. See, we must understand that there are two versions of teaching or education going on in this country just now. Our version is we send our children to school and they learn math and reading and something about the world, something about science, and ideally something about their country. The new method, the other side, in teaching is wholly different. It is to ideologically convert, to revolutionize. One of the most wide-read and widespread books in teacher training and master's programs is Paolo Ferreri's book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It is the tome studied by most teachers in training today. Ferrer was a Marxist and saw all education as useful only if it categorized individuals, students, or society into categories of oppressed and oppressor. And it was the duty of the educator to educate the oppressed into a raised consciousness while educating them out of their oppression. As Daniel Buck put it, Ferrer, one of the authors assigned most often in schools of education, mapped the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy onto the teacher-student relationship and advocated for what he believed was a liberatory education. He cited the Maoist and Leninist revolutions as ideals of his thought in action. Where Ferrari shifts from Marxist ramblings to practical advice, he encourages teachers to spur their students toward discontent with the world around them. If there's a practical training involved, it's likely to be about how to discuss LGBTQ plus issues with three-year-olds. The same philosophy encourages action civics. 
Rather than teaching a straightforward history curriculum, educators are expected to encourage their students to advocate for social change. And as with, as, and as with any good Marxist theory, the oppression can be invented or instilled. Let us be very honest about this. Did you think, until yesterday, that five- and six-year-olds were ashamed of their race or their sex? Till they were taught to be? Did you think they needed to be? My memory of almost all auxiliary education of the past was to have children be comfortable with who they were, how they were born. That would be just as true as the famous blue eyes, brown eyes study, as it would be the free to be you and me effort of the Miss Foundation and Marlo Thomas, as it would be Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Again, children do not naturally see these problems, these things, race and sex. Adults may instill them, society may, but that's the only way children absorb them. They don't, they aren't, they aren't born to think in those terms. This is why they were, this is why there were those auxiliary efforts I mentioned above. When we had a more racially conscious and a more male-dominated society a little more than 50 years ago, it was good to get children to absorb non-racial and non-gender thinking or to reject racial and sexual stereotypes is perhaps the best way to put it. Having largely succeeded, we, we now must not give up the Marxist project here, the left thinks. Masculinity is toxic and whites are guilty from the moment they are born. And the whole country is systemically racist or against anyone not white or male. Again, children take in what society conveys. Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein under, understood this long ago in their production of South, South Pacific. Pacific. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. And so seeing plummeting math and reading scores, what is the National Education Association up to? Dave Seminara distills it well in this morning's Wall Street Journal. I quote at length, America's largest teachers union, the National Education Association, issued a 2023 summer reading list last month, and among its recommendations are Gender Queer, a graphic novel memoir about identifying outside the gender binary. I was shocked that a book marketed to young adults 12 to 18 has so much graphic content. Here's a sexting dialogue from page 170, quote, I got a new strap-on harness today. I can't wait to put it on you. I can't wait to have your something in my mouth. I'm going to give you the something of your life. Then I want you to something I can't say. On the facing page of this book, helpfully, color sketches graphically depict this scene. Twelve-year-olds. Seminar writes, I posted that quote with slightly less family-friendly redactions in the comment section below the NEA reading list, alongside several other comments from other readers. Within an hour, all the comments were deleted, and the comment section on the post was closed. The book is listed under the heading, Banned Books Celebrate the Freedom to Read, but the NEA doesn't want people to actually read it. They are the ones doing the banning. 
A day after closing the comments section, the NEA deleted one of its original recommendations, a book called Milo and Marcus at the End of the World by Kevin Christopher Snipes. Publishers Weekly calls that book an emotional navigation of faith and queerness about a boy named Milo who becomes convinced God is punishing him for being gay. A super-religious, super-shy nerd with adamantly Republican Presbyterian parents, Publishers Weekly calls it, Milo falls in love with a Cuban boy named Marcos and believes the world will end if he pursues this romance after a series of natural disasters occur during their courtship. There are no classics on the list, but there are other edgy recommendations, including Ready Player One, which has explicit descriptions of blow-up sex dolls, online brothels, and I guess we could call it a crude version of self-entertainment. The union also recommends a pair of books by ideologues who argue that America is systemically racist. White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo and Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Acco. These are listed under Books to Celebrate or Understand Juneteenth. But why not a history book, perhaps about slavery or the Civil War? Mr. Acho, a former professional football player and son of Nigerian immigrants, writes that, quote, we will never achieve a post-racial America as long as the gears of systemic racism continue to churn. He lectures white people, quote, you've likely spent your whole life enjoying the fruits of systemic racism and never having to directly engage with its fallout, close quote. Mr. Angelo sings a similar tune, quote, a racism-free upbringing is not possible. Because racism is a social system embedded in the culture and its institutions, we are born into the system and have no say in whether we will be affected by it, close quote. In light of recent parent revolts against ideological indoctrination in schools, you'd think the unions would be at pains to reassure the public that they're nonpartisan. Instead, they're doubling down on it, on the politics. That is their view of education. It is a subversive or to be a subversive activity. As I say, it's a very different view of education than most of us understood. Our view was, as William Bennett once put it, that we should want every student to know how mountains are made and that for most actions there is an equal and opposite reaction. They should know who said I am the state and who said I have a dream. They should know about subjects and predicates, about isosceles triangles and ellipses. They should know where the Amazon flows and what the First Amendment means. They should know about the Donner Party and slavery and Shylock and Hercules and Abigail Adams and where Ethiopia is and why there was a Berlin Wall. I refer back to this litany because in our examination of elementary education, we asked much the same question and received a closely related answer. While elementary graduates cannot be expected to give a sophisticated analysis of things like the slavery issue, we can reasonably believe that they will have heard about Dred Scott and will know that slavery was a major cause of the Civil War. In other words, we may plausibly expect that elementary school will give our children the best facts and basic facts and understanding of our civilization and that it will equip them with the skills to apprehend more complex knowledge, thus awakening the appetite for further learning. As I say, it's a different understanding of education that is taking place today, but we'd better understand it, for we aren't in the midst of closing the American mind anymore, folks. I'm sorry to say we've passed that point. We are in the course now of revolutionizing it. 
I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Young David, you took us out with some... uh, trumpet blasts there because we forgot a birthday didn't we forgot a monumental holiday a monumental holiday what did we forget it was doc severinson's birthday this past saturday and we didn't say anything on friday did no we, we did not and whose I fault is that six years yeah he's now. still alive for sure he is yeah. is he living in mexico still or did he move Gee, back I to the state <laughs> at one point he was living in mexico um i can't imagine he's playing anymore but but uh, did you did you call him? Try well, to call tried him. To, yeah, <laughs> we tried to call him yeah. and see if he wouldn't uh, like to be a guest on the show. But yeah. we uh, affectionately got no response. Yet, yet, yet. That Keep is hope correct. alive, that David. Is Keep hope alive, alive, young David. The dream endures the <laughs> yeah, well, we, we might. <laughs> Tremendous talent. I mean, unbelievable talent. Mm-hmm. He, um, so I, I, I could speak uh, about the various gifts and abilities of almost every well-known trumpet player. But all around, he was probably all around one of the most perfect. There was nothing he couldn't do and do really well. And when you looked at him, if you ever go on YouTube and watch him in his prime, not later years. I mean, it's hard to sustain that kind of playing into your later years. So, But if you look at him in his prime, let's say in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he looks at his trumpet. Do you notice the way he looks at his trumpet? He looks at his trumpet like it was his girlfriend or wife. <laughs> no, really, he does, and and he treated it probably like that. What did they say about Jackie Treehorn, Bill? <laughs> he, what was the line from the Big Lebowski? He's such a sexist. He treats objects like women. But I don't. I, I don't mean to cast that aspersion on Doc. But he did. He treated that horn like a like he was in love with it. Others treated their instruments differently. Like Maynard would treat his like a weapon of war, I think. Anyway, okay. Happy birthday, Doc Severinsen. Thank you for the music. Um, this story has been getting a lot of... But did you guys see Joe Biden at the beach over the weekend? Did you see video of this? The Delaware Beach? I, I, Not good. I can't imagine that President Biden has a beach body very much. <laughs> well, you don't have to imagine. You'll see. Oh, boy. You make your own decision. And why they allow this... Const- the, who had a funny line the other day about someone the other day said, um, I would be a major success in life if I concentrated on anything so much as Joe Biden concentrates on his walking. <laughs> well done, right? Right. But it's not it was not a good look. Um, when's the last time, Bill, uh, David, young David, when's the last time we saw a president without a shirt? Was that Johnson? With showing his famous gallbladder surgery or something like that? We shouldn't see it. I think maybe Bill Clinton at the beach once, maybe, with his wife or something. Yeah, I don't know. Things we don't need. And if he's trying to impress us with his his, uh, young and—young would be wrong, but youthful vigor and and vim, this wasn't it. You look at this and you kind of— you you kind of say, "Oh my eyes! I'll never be able to unsee this." I, I wonder if this isn't sort of a, a subtle response to to President Kennedy's workout. I mean, sorry, candidate Kennedy's workout videos. It's not a good one. No, it's not. It's not a good one. <laughs> you put those two together. <laughs> yeah, not a good one. 
The other thing that the other story that was circulating about Joe Biden over the weekend was a Politico report about his very, very well-known, um, at least well-known in D.C. circles, temper. Did you know? I mean, they, they've done a good job of consulting it. You're nodding. You knew this. You knew about his temper. You read the reports. It's it's an it's it's um, it's especially ironic because he made a big deal when he uh, when he became president uh, before he swore in his appointees and staffers. Many of you may remember this. He famously said. Um, quote, I'm not joking when I say this. If you are ever working with me and I hear you treat another colleague with disrespect, talk down to someone, I promise you I will fire you on the spot. On the spot. Do you remember him saying that? I remember it very well. And um, there were then a couple of stories coming out over the first year of the presidency about how poorly Kamala Harris was treating people and how it didn't meet and she was losing staffers. Remember, they were they were they were resigning or leaving their jobs, quitting their jobs with Kamala Harris because she was so um, hard to work for, difficult to work for, temperamental. And the stories then, just for a brief moment, were about how it didn't suit, didn't meet the Biden standard of uh, not talking down to staffers. But there's this whole article in the Politico. Jim Garrity writes. Um, that Biden has such a quick trigger temper that some aides try to avoid meeting alone with him. That was in the Politico report. First, perhaps this isn't any sign of aging or some recent change. Back in 2012, Jeff Connaughton, a Biden Senate staffer, wrote a tell-all book that described his former boss as, quote, an egomaniacal autocrat who was determined to manage his staff through fear. Connaughton offered an account of working for Biden to George Packer, quote, but if you just worked your butt off for him for a few years, he ignored you, intimidated you, sometimes humiliated you, took no interest in your advancement, and never learned your name. Hey, chief, he'd say, or how's it going, captain? Unless, captain, unless he was ticked at you, in which case he'd employ one of his favorite terms for male underlings. Dumb, a word I can't say, but it doesn't begin with S. Dumb, you know what, over here didn't get me the briefing materials I needed. It was both noun and adjective. Quote, is the event leader a Democrat or a Republican, or are you too dumb blank to know? So perhaps hurling profanity-laden criticism upon the staffer is just par for the course for Biden. But um, this is a longstanding Biden managerial habit. And um, my guess is it'll probably come out more and more as uh, stories are coming out more and more that just aren't favorable. Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. My good friend and a very good man, John Dombrowski, is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com, and he has his own radio show, Heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. How are you, John? Happy Monday. Happy Monday, Seth. I'm doing great. Good. Glad to have you. You liked Doc Severinsen, huh? Like him. Uh, I did. Still alive. Yeah. 94. Oh, excellent. 94. Yeah. Wow. 96. My mom, my mom Sorry. just my... turned nine. Well, my mom just turned 95. So he was born in 27 then. Yeah, must have been. Yeah. Is your mom? Uh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, she just turned 95. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful to hear. Just God bless mm-hmm. them both. All. Everyone. Um, two interesting reports here. One is um, fairly, dis- I mean, what some are saying is a fairly disappointing jobs report, f- 
report for June, there right. was an industry that hired a lot more new workers. Son of a gun, it was the government outpacing <laughs> healthcare, construction, professional, and uh, and private educational services. The pace of government hiring has nearly tripled so far this year. Yeah, up to 99,000, it said. Yeah. 60,000 were additional yeah. to states, local, and federal payrolls. It's amazing um, that the government is, is doing so much for our economy, trying to keep people, you know, working. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the one negative about this, of course, is, is that, you know, whenever you get a government job, that's it. You're, you're set for life. Yes. I, I, they never lay off anybody. No. Right? I mean, but I just so don't it, know that it's a great piece, a, a great injection of juice to the economy. No, I no. Of course, it's not. I mean, we need workers uh, out in the private sector. There's yeah. No question about it. That's where we need to be creating jobs, not in government. Again, uh, every time we add people to government, it's for what? For more regulations for us? Yeah, or, of course. It's and uh, then it's course. more expense to the taxpayer. I mean, we're we're just keep you know. Making digging the hole deeper as we go, Seth. I, I won't make you say anything political here, John. You typically don't, and I. But I will say that I do recall uh, uh, that when Bernie Sanders was running for president, he wanted to guarantee everyone a job who wanted a job. And when asked how he would force that, he said, "Well, we'll just let the government hire them." I yeah. and and it reminded me of thinking. Someone said, you know, often you will hear people say. That uh, if, if if how would this administration look any different than if Bernie Sanders were president? Well, here might be just a piece of that indicia, you know. It, it very well may be the case. Yes, I, I agree. Stock and, and markets. No, yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. No. I was going to say another part of this uh, was talking about the markets and, yeah. and how the markets have performed over the past uh, different uh, presidents that yeah. we've had in place. Yeah. Uh, and I went back and did a little did a little research of my own here. Yeah. Uh, there's no question that uh, when, when this report looked back as far as President Obama, uh, we were coming out of the great you know recession back then, uh, so the market was obviously poised for a tremendous growth, and that's when we started to see these lower interest rates, uh, which just gave uh, basically a green light to stocks, yeah. um, and that lasted for maybe what 12 years or yeah. so, and then uh, we started seeing inflation once the current administration got in, and that just destroyed. Um, you know, what what we had over the last uh, decade. Yeah. Uh, but during the Trump presidency, what was interesting, I did see here, the Dow Jones Industrial Average went from uh, about 17,600 to 33,000. Yeah. The S&P went from 2,000 to 4. The NASDAQ from 5,400 to 13,000. I mean, these are staggering numbers. Yeah, these are, these are 40 and 162% increase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the prosperity that we had back, back just a couple of years ago. It's amazing how quickly things changed. Um, and... You know, the, the next set of, uh, you know, eyes is going to be looking now at inflation. We've got uh, more uh, producer price indexes and uh, consumer price index coming out. Uh, the Fed's going to be looking at this seriously, whether or not they're going to be raising rates in the next Fed meeting. Uh, the consensus seems to be yes. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll be raising at least another um, quarter point, possibly a half. Um, but I think the market is really ready for that and Good. poised for it already. Good. And um, uh, it's amazing how resilient uh, companies have been, Good. and they've been ahead of this as best as they can um, by cutting their workforce and cutting expenses. Uh, and most of these larger companies where we're seeing the growth set is uh, companies that are funding themselves. They don't need to be out there borrowing money to run their business. Well, 
you're expert at helping navigate people in those worlds, in those waters. John, thank you. Uh, David, young David reminds me, Ronald Reagan's fa- uh, scariest nine words, I'm from the government and I'm here, oh, to, help. here to help. If you get enough people working for the government, no one will need any help. They won't need any help, yeah. Yeah, That's crazy. okay. Just a oh, thought. Gosh. Okay. Uh, you can reach out to me by going to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank, Thank you, Thank you, John. Have Bye-bye. a good one. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Heather MacDonald has a great piece I wanted to share with you in the Wall Street Journal on the um, on the affirmative action case from a week or so ago. Um, affirmative action bred 50 years of mismatch. Then I want to make a, a separate point about it. If I forget, David, remind me. Heather McDonald, this is the case about Harvard. She writes, Justice Sonia Sotomayor had harsh words for her colleagues who voted last month to bar the use of race in college admissions. She alleged in her dissenting opinion that the sixth justice majority in the case had subverted the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the law, not upheld it, by, quote, further entrenching racial inequality in education, close quote. Chief Justice John Roberts' majority opinion slammed shut the door of opportunity to underrepresented minorities, especially black students, who still fight against a society that is inherently unequal, she wrote. Many in academia agreed with Justice Sotomayor. Incoming Harvard President Claudine Gay warned in a video statement that the decision, quote, means the real possibility that opportunities will be foreclosed. Close quote. David Thomas, president of Morehouse College, asserted that in the absence of racial preferences, black students will rightly conclude that they are not wanted. Students of color may not feel that they matter, according to Angel B. Perez, chief executive of the National Association of College Admissions Counseling. The charge that colorblind admissions will foreclose educational opportunities for blacks rests on a breathtakingly elitist view of of education. And the idea that minority students should now conclude that they aren't wanted on college campuses defies reality. Black students will attend college in the same numbers after affirmative action as they did before, if they so choose. Colleges will be as eager to have them. The only difference, assuming compliance with the rulings, a big if, is that such students will attend college on the same footing as most students from unpreferred racial groups admitted to schools for which their academic skills qualify them. Racial preferences catapulted many minority students into colleges for which they were simply unprepared. As Richard Sander and Stuart Taylor demonstrated in Mismatch, their book on affirmative action, there are very few black students in the top academic cohorts from which highly selective colleges draw most of their students. Black high school seniors are one-tenth as likely to be in the top tenth of college applicants nationwide as non-black applicants. The average black SAT score in 2022 was 926 on a 1,600-point scale. The average Asian score was 1,229, and the average white score was 1,098. Activists have for decades scoured standardized tests for questions that might presume race-specific cultural knowledge, any reference to regattas, say, if they ever existed, 
have long since been eliminated. The College Board has also eliminated questions with too wide a racial variance in correct answers. Because elite colleges are determined to engineer racially diverse student bodies, they have reached deep down into the African-American applicant pool to fill their quotas. They end up admitting students who, in a world without affirmative action, would attend less selective but perfectly respectable schools. Harvard's own research showed that the black share of its undergraduate population would drop from 10% to less than 1% if it admitted students according to academic skills exclusively. Harvard has the pick of the black U.S. high school population, but even it can't fill its desired quota without double standards. At each lower tier of academic selectivity, colleges deep dig deeper into the black applicant pool to try to fill their quotas in what Sanders and Taylor called the cascade effect. The result isn't a benefit to these students, but a burden. Research shows they are more likely to end up in the bottom of their classes, if not drop out of college and professional education entirely. This academic mismatch doesn't dispel racial stereotypes, it reinforces them. In a post-preference world, more black students, not fewer, will graduate in STEM fields since aspiring black STEM majors will attend schools where the teaching is pitched to their level of academic preparedness. The reconfiguration of black college population would signify the destruction of educational opportunity only if elite colleges alone provide the potential for upward mobility. But if it is so aspiration-crushing for a black or Latino student to attend a third- or fourth-tier college, why should any student suffer so dire a fate? Lower-tier schools should be shut down so that all students can go to the highly selective universities that offer the only route to life success. Major corporations deploy a similar snobbery, more than 70 of them including American Airlines, Amex, Bain, General Motors, PayPal, joined a friend of the court brief to uphold racial preferences so that they can maintain a diverse workforce themselves. But they could recruit the same black students no matter where those students went to college. Admittedly, those companies would have to broaden their recruiting itinerary to venues that may offend their elitist sensibilities. The mystery is why thousands of colleges and universities the preference supporters deem beneath consideration haven't stood up for themselves. They should let the world know that they are as capable of educating future leaders as Harvard and Yale are. Nearly 50 years of pro-preference rhetoric have convinced many black students that being rejected from a school because of low test scores is the same as being rejected because of race. That rhetoric persuaded some that they face a hostile education environment, when the truth is the opposite. Every college in the country was desperate to enroll them and still is. The majority ruling doesn't deny equal educational opportunity, as Sotomayor asserts. It returns equal opportunity to its true meaning. The possibility of going as far as your effort and accomplishments can take you. So, well done by Heather, as always. The point I wanted to make here that shouldn't be lost is Harvard's jig may be up on a lot of things including what are known as legacy admissions. These high proportions of students that get into these elite schools because someone in their family did. And there's now serious efforts, bipartisan, Republican and Democrat, to end this practice amongst our colleges, 
to end these practices amongst our colleges at all levels because of the fundamental unfairness of that. That, too, is basically admission by blood, isn't it? And it's going to be a problem for schools like Harvard and the fancy Ivy Leagues because they do it for one reason and one reason only. They do it because they want the money that these students, they know, or their families, or their legatees, or their trust funds, will convey over to the schools. It's done from the perspective of lucre and greed. And now there is an effort to get rid of it because of this decision and holding. Harvard and these schools have been so removed from the society they live in that I don't think they realized that fighting for this racial nonsense was going to end someday, someday soon, just as it was going to have other negative effects from their perspective, which is getting rid of these legacy admissions, which they so financially depend on, too. It's interesting these schools that purportedly are there to train the future are so removed from the society in which they live. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You think about the economy with the stock market's volatility, talk of the recession, hardened inflation, bank failures. Where do you go to invest? Why Refi has an investment for you in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, and they are headquartered here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. You won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. And you can as well. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. You can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return, a ten and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y then refy dot com or call them at eight 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 Y Refi thirty four eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. Rob is in surprise. Hello, Rob. Hi, Seth. I hope you had a great weekend. I did. Uh, Thank you, no, sir. Well, I I did okay myself. Good. I um had a couple of things. One was last week you played some song and it had Maynard, it had uh, Lee Rittenauer, it had Harvey, or not uh, Harvey Mason, he's a drummer, uh, Stanley Clark. Uh-huh. And, and yes, the song was called Hollywood, yes, from a 1982 Hollywood. album, right. Oh, from the 1982 album. Yeah. Okay. And of course, you know, needless to say, um, you didn't mention the drummer, but then you know, he had been going through drummers from Harvey Mason to Danny D'Imperio to, uh, I think, Peter Erskine even played. He did. And this- Erskine played with him before he went to Weather Report. Yeah. And so I didn't know. Oh, and Steve Gadd. So I didn't know exactly which I think he, I think he had Alex Acuna in on that set, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Well, Alex, yeah, he could play drums. He was also mostly a percussion. Maybe more percussion. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Which is okay because you know he he does that sort of. We'll thing. take him. Um, yeah, so I I'm uh, going to have to do a little homework. Yeah, I, I should check too. Homework. It's it's just to check out the personnel on the Hollywood album, 1982. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, last week, um, Kamala Harris went to uh, New Orleans for this Essence Fest. Yeah. I yeah. guess. Now, first of all, does 
a vice president get to go wherever they want without letting the president know? <laughs> I don't know if the president approves or not. That's a great question. That's probably the best job in the world, vice president. You can do almost anything you want. You know? Yeah. And and the reason I ask that is because... It's probably you know, cleared through the political office. It is. It well, would be cleared through the political office of the presidency. Yeah, but it also tells you, like, well, if somebody has to give her permission, who's really running things? And I think that may answer itself yeah. when you think about yeah. that. I don't know if it's true. I, I Well, I, I think those trips do have to be cleared through the political office, which is overseen by the chief of staff. Typically, that's how it would work. The real question is the uh, awful, awful national anthem that was rewritten and sang there that she, you know, gave credence to.